Hello, welcome to episode 8 of The Warpod, the official podcast of the Remote Warfare Programme, a London-based research initiative focusing on remote warfare, the trend where states support local and regional forces on the front lines rather than deploying large numbers of their own troops. The Remote Warfare Programme is part of the Oxford Research Group, a peace and security think tank. I'm Abigail Watson, Research Manager of the Remote Warfare Programme. In this episode, I'll be joined by Delina Godger and Flor Berger from IISS to discuss international engagement in the Sahel. In July 2019, in one of her last acts as Secretary of State for Defence, Penny Morden announced that 250 British soldiers would be deployed to Mali this year to support the UN mission in the country. This deployment forms part of the UK's commitment to increase the number of British personnel and resources going to the region. However, the Sahel already has a number of actors, including states, multilateral organisations and private companies, undertaking parallel and often contradictory activities. If the UK is going to have a positive impact on the region, it needs to understand some of the problems of the current approaches. As such, we have two experts to do just that. Welcome, Delina and Fleur. Before we start, could you briefly outline your own work on the Sahel? Who wants to go first? Um, so perhaps very quickly. Um, the, the Open Society Foundations has, um, the, the office in Brussels has recently started engagement on the Sahel and civil society in the five Sahel countries. Um, and so I work for the for our Brussels office um, and the five Sahel countries at the moment. Uh, on my part, so I work at WIWS and uh, for this organization, I monitor conflict in both the Sahel and the Lake Chad Basin. Uh, I monitor those conflicts for the Armed Conflict Survey, which is our annual publication on uh, armed conflicts. Uh, and I focus particularly on conflict parties, uh, be it like non-armed groups or state actors. Great, thank you very much. So can we first start by Delina, you explaining why there was a spike in international engagement in the Sahel and especially in Mali? Mm-hmm. So the I think it would be quite important first, um, as you say, Abby, to, to touch a bit on the roots of violence, especially in Mali, um, which has consequences for the region to this day. So um, in 2012, the MNLA, which is the National Movement for the Liberation of Azawad, uh, which is a northern, the northern region of Mali, um, decided to, to push the state out of the cities of Gao, Kidal, Timbuktu, and some bits of the Mopti region. Um, they were calling for independence or greater autonomy. Um, to do so, they also partner, partnered up with um, Ansar Din, um, which is a militant Islamist group uh, led by Yad Ali, um, and managed um, ultimately to push, to push the state, the Malian state, um, out of this northern region. Um, once they did so, however, there was a struggle to reconcile conflicting visions of a state for both groups. So uh, the MNLA ended up um, being against um, against Ansardine, but also the movement for oneness and jihad in West Africa, the Mujao, which is a splinter of Al-Qaeda uh, in the Islamic Maghreb. 
So the French military decided in 2013 to intervene under UN Security Council Resolution 2085 um, and through their um, Operation Serval, which lasted about a year and was replaced by Barkhane in 2014. Um, and became Barkhane is a is a regional um, endeavor and is not just a Malian one. So all of this um, still has consequences to this day. It is this, of course, but also a lot of other region, uh, reasons that we will perhaps touch upon later. And then, Flo, would you mind? So that's how it started in 2012, and some of how it's progressed from the French side. But could you talk a bit more broadly about? what international engagement looks like now and how it's changed from that 2012 intervention. Yeah, of course. So, as uh, Delina said, it started in the north, but of course the, the conflict and violence has changed since. So, basically what international engagement has done is adapt to this new reality. So, the violence has shifted from northern Mali to central Mali and then western um, Niger and northern and eastern Burkina Faso. And also, of course, there's a shift in like geographic area, but also the, there's really been now an overlap between conflicts. So it's not just jihadist groups, but it's also like criminal networks, self-defense militias, and I'm not going to touch upon this, but there's a lot of different layers of conflict and also the number of actors, of armed actors has increased. So this is really the new geographical focus of the force, and Balkan is first and foremost a counter-terrorism operation. But it still has a develop, development uh, side, and they try from time to time to fill the gaps that the Malian government uh, is leaving behind. But again, like a lot of French people don't want too much to talk about this development side. They really reinforce that is, this is counter-terrorism. We're not trying to be there in the place of the Malian state. Okay. So this is for Operation Barkan. Uh, the second main international engagement is the MINUSMA, of course. Uh, so this is a peacekeeping force. So it kind of balances the counterterrorism of Barkan. Uh, and here we're talking about 13,000 military personnel and 2,000 police. So it is an important uh, presence and a budget of uh, more than 1 billion. Uh, as for the initiatives, MINUSMA has changed as time uh, went by and as the violence shifted, so first of course it was focusing on the north and the transition authorities, then when uh, the peace agreement was signed, they were then in charge of implementing, implementing the peace agreement, and now that the violence has shifted to central Mali, their new uh, strategic priority as of uh, June 2019 is to restore state presence in central Mali and to protect civilians there. This, is, this has brought good, a good result because we've seen that in the second part of 2019, communal violence has decreased thanks to the patrols that they conduct there and to their mediation effort. The last um, kind of big international engagement is the US, of course. Um, it's not as, as big as France and the UN, but it's still a very important and it has a long-standing presence in the region in terms of training, support, and intelligence gathering capacity. They have approximately 800 soldiers in Niger, in Niamey, and they also built a massive airbase for their drones uh, to operate from. Now, last year, uh, in November, they stated that they wanted to focus on West Africa and the Sahel, now that the Islamic State 
is defeated, uh, or as they say, or they want to think, uh, in in the Middle East. So they, they want to focus uh, and on the Sahel, and they want to create a new uh, special envoy position and a new task force. At the same time, and this was, this was a concern in the G5 Sahel Summit last week, um, it was reported that the U.S. was also looking to withdraw their troops, or at least, uh, I mean, all the way to a complete pullout. So we don't really know what the U.S. is doing right now, uh, but it's it's a big uh, concern for the G5 Sahel and, and France. Thanks, that's super interesting. And I guess a, an actor that you haven't really talked about that much is the EU. What is the EU's role in the Sahel, and what is it doing? Mm-hmm. So... Um, Perhaps yes, it would it would definitely make sense actually to to mention what the European Union is doing now and what it has been doing in the region because European Union leaders have been present in the Sahel since two thousand and eight and they have been um, advocating for a comprehensive strategy which includes um, development and security at the same time since then. So the European Union has been a huge actor in the region um, for for a number of years now. So. However, the European approach to the region since 2015 has changed a lot and public discourse, which until then had been centered around development aid and cooperation, uh, is now focusing more and more on, um, on, on security and migration. So the security shift for the European Union has been geographical in one, se- in one sense because it has moved from Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, Syria, of course. Um, it has moved from there to the Sahel geographically, but also thematically. The region is now less of a development focus area and more of a um, strategic uh, security and migration um, region. So in In June 2018, the European Union adopted conclusions on the Sahel, um, which were comprehensive, um, which meant uh, tackling root causes of extremism, um, but also it also established regional advisory and coordination cells, the so-called RAC, um, because the EU wants to make its engagement in the region um, more decentralized. So it wants more states to be involved um, in, in what is happening and not just um, its training mission to Mali and its uh, civilian mission to Mali and Niger. Um, but the EU also wants to make the G5, which is the regional joint force, more sustainable by its long-term commitment, says that it wants to transfer um, its its coordination from Brussels to the structures of the G5 Sahel in the long term. So, <laughs> Angel Lozada, um, which is the European Union Special Representative for the region, has said uh, a number of times that the Sahel is um, avant la lettre, so the, the original comprehensive strategy area um, of the security, migration and development nexa for the European Union. A bit of a of a laboratory, of an experimentation um, type region. And um, Bernardo Venturi, which is a researcher at IAI, the Italian um, International Research Institute, um, has defined this new phase of EU engagement in the region as a phase of securitization, which follows three other phases of colonialism, post-colonialism and development. 
So the main assumption for the EU, we would say, um, is that security seems to lead on development. And this is what is particularly concerning for think tankers and civil society groups and researchers in general. Um, one, perhaps one way and, um, and then, yeah, I think this, this will be enough. But one way to exemplify this is that academic papers and research on the Sahel at the European Union level and European member states level used to be published on journals of development. And now they're increasingly being published um, in journals focusing on security, regional security and migration. So I think this is, this is quite illuminating. Um, and finally, this does not depend on the migration crisis only, this shift in um, thematic focus, but also on European internal reasoning and this current European Union push towards strategic autonomy, which is led by Brexit, Trump disengagement, a number of other reasons um, which make France and Germany, but also other European Union states, increasingly worried. So I think this would be perhaps a broad summary of what is happening at the EU level. Thank you, both of you. That's such is such an interesting overview of both the actors and the change of the narrative that's been framing the Sahel since the start of the conflict in 2012, especially that academia is now reflecting the shifts in policymakers' engagement in the region. It seems like this is a ridiculous amount of activities that are all going on by numerous different actors. And in our own work, we've charted how much of it isn't very well coordinated. Um, is that the end? Like, it, what is? Is there any more initiatives? Just tell me that's it. <laughs> so perhaps just just really briefly, um, it seems to me, but also to other researchers, I would say that the the current trend for force military forces in general is one that could be defined the more the merrier. Um, because, the, for example, um, amongst the very many initiatives that are going on that Flore, um talked about earlier, um, so we have Barkhane, of course, we have the national armies of these countries, because, of course, it's not just foreign engagement, but it's also very much regional and national. So Mali, for example, and its uh, FAMA forces, they are its, its national forces. Um, then France has another... Um, Another um, engagement in the region, which is uh, Operation Saber, um, and then of course the European Union missions, the U.S. presence, the G5 Sahel Joint Force, which is the regional force. And, and just quickly to yeah. say, which countries are part of the G5 Sahel Force? Um, so the the G5 Sahel Force is made up of um, Mauritania, Niger, Mali, Chad, and uh, Burkina Faso. So perhaps um, maybe Flore wants to say a bit more about uh, the recent Operation Takuba, which is led by the French, and the P3S, maybe? Yeah, for sure. So I think your question on, like, do we, are we waiting for more operations, the, the, the answer is clearly yes. Uh, I think last year was kind of a shock for everyone. Um, like, the level of violence really brought a new, renewed attention to the Sahel. And we've heard a lot of new initiative in either announced or like, you know, in the future, this is what we're going to do. So we're not, uh, it's not the end. Uh, it's maybe even just the beginning of operation. Uh, oh, <laughs> so what we know for now, uh, first, just to come back, uh, 
on the G5 Sahel summit that happened in France on the 13th of January. Uh, there they launched a new Sahel coalition. Um, it's not a new force as such, it's just like they said it's a new strategy. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with the word new, I don't think there's much new in there, but still the, the main point is that they we will now have a joint command between the G5 Sahel force and France. So until now, Barkhane was doing its own operation and was working with its own intelligence. And the same goes for G5 Sahel. So now they're actually going to work, in theory, under United Command, so that if there's an attack and the FAMA uh, call for Barkhane, they will have instantly the same information, and France, with its aircraft, will be able to intervene quicker. So hopefully uh-huh. the, the attacks against military positions in Malinir and Burkina Faso will be less deadly. So it's not a new force, but it's a new way of working together. They've never done that before, so we don't know yet exactly how this new command is going to take place. Is it going to be successful? Is it really going to bring the results that they say it's going to be? Like, we'll see probably in the next few months, or even maybe a year, because it will take time to be put in place. So that's one. Then we have Operation Takuba, as Elena mentioned. This is also a new French-led operation, uh, and it will be a coalition of European special forces uh, that are going to be involved in the training and mentoring of the G5-style armies. And they will de- um, directly participate with those forces in combat operation. We don't know that much about it yet. Uh, what we know is that they are planning for an initial capacity for summer 2020, and a full capacity by December 2020. So it's not right now. I think we need to be patient a bit with this. Uh, in terms of members, uh, about a dozen European countries have expressed interest. We know that the Estonians have confirmed. So it would be around 500 soldiers in total, 40 Estonians, a few Belgians, and then also Czech, Finnish, Norwegian, and Swedish. Whoa. Uh, that's what we know so far. Mm-hmm. It's not officially confirmed, but that's what we hear uh, going on. And um, today, actually, the army chief, uh, so the French uh, army chief of staff, announced that Balkan would receive more military means in the next few months. In the Jifar Sahel summit in uh, France, they already announced that 220 soldiers would be sent, um, so French soldiers, uh, but there will be more, apparently. And Takuba, Takuba is one of the way the, the French forces is going to be reinforced. So this is Takuba. Then we also heard last year, at the end of the year, that ECOWAS, so the regional organization of West Africa, was going to maybe or potentially send their standby force. Uh, and they also pledged a billion uh, to tackle terrorism in the region. I haven't heard anything since, so I'm not sure what plans they're currently talking about, but there might be a new military operation from the region. Um, and lastly, France and Germany also announced their intention to reinforce and broaden their support to the G5 Sahel by creating the P3S, Partnership for Stability and Security in the Sahel. Uh, they talked about it end of last year. This is more a development initiative rather than purely security, but it's still another framework, another initiative. This is ridiculous. (laughs) Um, I just have a secondary question. Do do you see these new initiatives as countries learning and adapting 
Or is it just, like Delina said, the more the merrier? Hmm. You only go for it. It's very difficult to tell at this stage, I would say, because, for example, the Estonians or other smaller states, which you already discussed in another podcast here, um, it's still too early to say whether they're adapting their strategy or they're changing it in any way. And I don't think there have been very many studies on what is happening in the Sahel now as compared to what has happened in Afghanistan, for example. So something comparative, I think something comparative that widely widely considers what has happened in Afghanistan or in Iraq and then applies it um, to what has happened in Israel is still is still missing. So it's very it's very early I would say. Uh, to, and to I, be able I would to also talk. say sorry. Yeah of course I would also say from some of the research that we did with soldiers in Mali that there's there's been a bit of that of not learning from other campaigns and then a bit of applying quick and easy lessons from other campaigns so a lot of the soldiers that we spoke to that were about to be deployed to both Mali and Kenya were just given Iraq and Afghanistan lessons learned Mm -hmm. and so at quite a tactical level we might be learning those lessons but I completely agree that at that strategic level are we saying well what should we really be learning from those campaigns and I think and I think civil society in the region in this case gives a fairly and, and local populations give a fairly good indication of their the, the, I think their levels of approval are able to tell us um, whether the way they were conducting warfare and the case of France I think is quite indicative um, of how um, of what they think of these interventions. For example, there was in 2013, Al Jazeera conducted this survey um, in Mali following Operation Serval, and there was 93% rate of approval of the French-led intervention. And now, um, Flor just mentioned the the poor summit um, in. I think um, what happened in in the south of Mali on the same day in uh, Po, actually, in Burkina Faso, uh, in, uh, in Burkina Faso, yeah, uh, there was um, there was a parallel summit which criticized French paternalism and French ba- French blackmailing. Yeah. So this is this is something that I think tells us what local um, what what the people in the region think of how we are conducting warfare. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's interesting also because Macron uh, kind of asked for the summit in Po because he there's there's more and more French resentment in the region and like a lot of protests and stuff. So what he wanted most of all is that the G5 South countries come forward publicly and say we want French to continue to be engaged in the Sahel. So that was the main yeah. you know point of the summit. He just asked them to come and say again that they were happy with French so that, you know, Mm. it would be re-legitimized, even though the population Mm. is still frustrated and still maybe doesn't understand what France is doing. Yeah. And there are more and more mounting, and I think this is is one of the issues with remote warfare, but in general warfare in the region, this mounting amount of, I mean, often ridiculous, as they often are, conspiracy theories. So ideas around the fact that France is purposely helping uh, jihadi groups mm-hmm. to gain control and then basically playing a double game. And so 
the more an intervention continues, and I think Nyagale Bagayoko um, has, um, she's an excellent researcher, and she's explained this very well, the more an intervention happens in an area which is not your own country, of course, yeah. the more resentment will be fueled uh, in, in the long term. And that's especially true if you don't engage with that resentment. Exactly. The, the, the story has just been, accept us or leave. Yeah. And that, that's all the options on the table. Yeah. I think this opens us quite nicely into asking what the, the broader problems with the international approach have been beyond and including France. Yeah, um, so if I can start this, I let the United speak about the EU approach, uh, but um, on my part, what I see is that there's not one approach, so I can't speak about the dangers of the current approach because it's just not, there's not one approach. There's France on one side, there's the G5 Saha, there's MINUSMA, and there's everyone else that wants to be involved uh, in the situation. It's clearly as we've been talking about the crowded security environment. I yeah. often talk about traffic jam of security initiatives. I think it's quite yeah, a good metaphor for what is what is happening. And uh, as you also said, that we the the actors don't really cooperate. So that's one point. And the second point is that when they do uh, cooperation is welcome. So for example Takuba or the Sahel coalition is the, you know, bringing the different actors together to cooperate, I think this is welcome. Um, because, for example, the new joint command might lead to military results, so we might see, you know, maybe a decrease in attacks, or at least they might not be as deadly. But this is not what's going to resolve the conflict. What is lacking is not a new strategy or a new framework or a new this or a new that, it's just what is lacking is really a political strategy. Uh, and we see that really clearly at the G5 South Summit in Po because there's been big announcements about this new cooperation, this new joint command, etc. But the third and the fourth pillar of the Sahel coalition, which is the restoration of state authority and development assistance, we haven't heard anything. They've just like said again and again what they've been uh, committed to do for the past seven years. So there's really... No, yeah, there's no progress on that side. And, uh, you might want to create new, new initiatives, a new partnership, but if there's no uh, progress on the political side, and when I mean political side, I mean in terms of governance and politics, in terms of decentralization, state presence and delivery of services, uh, I think the mining authorities also have to work on their legitimacy because as of now, People trust more self-defense militias or maybe even jihadist groups than their own authorities. Uh, the rule of law and justice, this, these are the things that matters and that are in the long term going to bring stability, not a new joint command, not a new force, not European special forces. This is not going to achieve much. And I think maybe adding to this um, the issue of of remote warfare in general, so security force assistance, special operation forces, and drone deployment, um, it gives an it gives I think an indication of how power players in the region, external power players, are very much interventionist, but they are unwilling to bear the costs of these interventions. And the U.S. drone base is, I mean, is, is the best example for this because as the U.S. is investing 
huge amounts of money into this into this base. At the same time, there was a recent announcement by U.S. Defense Secretary Esper, um, who reportedly said that the U.S. intends to reduce post-9/11 efforts um, and focus more on great power competition, and so less counterterrorism and more confrontation with China, Russia. Um, so this is this is, I think, another problem that the this makes it less costly to intervene, of course, but also makes this remote presence possibly endless. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is a problem, and the remote warfare problem is also linked to how civil society is not being kept abreast of, of what is happening in their countries, because if it's like footprint operations and you don't have huge deployments of people, then you don't need to inform civil society as much which of course leads to, again, conspiracy theories, more and more disapproval of your presence. Um, and I think it also leads to something that is is very much evident now, um, but more and more journalists, more and more civil society representatives are saying, if you're investing this amount of money, if, you're, um, if all of you um, Western governments, uh, European Union, um, US and, and other forces, are intervening into our country um, and you are so strong and powerful, then why haven't you managed to kick out um, these terrorist groups, but also in general? um, And this is, I think, one of the problems with the current approach is that um, (laughs) the focus is all against terrorist groups and there is not enough reasoning of what is happening with other armed groups in the region, mm-hmm. which are not necessarily uh, led by the alleged idea of, uh, of a jihad. Um, and so they're all put in the same terrorist pot without actually being able to discern who is who and why they're doing what they're doing. Um, so I think, yeah, this is this is just one of the other issues. And one other thing um, is also... I think we should also take more into consideration us as European governments and um, US presence, more into consideration how hard all of this must be for the for the local governments who need to juggle between being good partners to the EU and the US, um, keep discontent in their own countries low, and this is why the poor, what Macron said that poor is also problematic, um, but also not jeopardize their relationships with uh, their own militaries. So it's, it's a very difficult balance also for the, for the governments in these five countries. Thank you both. That's super interesting. So I, I guess I guess the, the problem seemed to be the lack of coordination and an unwillingness to engage at both the national and civil society level. And then these short-term, militarily-focused counter-terrorism objectives, which, like Delina, like you already said, this continues to define Western military approaches more mm. generally. Do, do you see ways that we can address this or mitigate against some of these dangers? Mm. Would you, do you want to take this? Sure. <laughs> sure. Um, so I think, first of all, lack of coordination is a problem, but um, as I already said, even if everything was super well coordinated, it would not resolve the, the issue. Um, so instead of you know creating new platforms, necessarily should foster synergy and also have a really like locally driven cooperation rather than Macron deciding deciding what yeah. G5 Sahara should do. Um, 
Also, I think one of the big issues is that the um, strategy is actually, well, first of all, it's not, um, we see that it's not obviously not working because uh, they're actually doing the opposite of what they're trying to do. So their strategy is actually fueling tensions. It's not even like staying in the status quo, it's actually worsening yeah. the conflict dynamics. Um, and I think one, one of the reasons why is because both France and Mali and Niger also has done that. They're delegating their security responsibilities to self-defense militias. So, for example, France and Niger, they worked with Gatia at the border with Niger, uh, and it's the same is happening in, in central Mali, uh, because the problem is the, the local armies are not capable of covering the, their entire country. It's just way too big and everything is very porous, so it's, it's a difficult environment to operate in. Uh, the, Fran- the, the French, I mean, they, they have more than 4,000 soldiers, but again, it's not enough to cover all the marginalized and rural areas. So what they, what they did is use those self-defense groups or local militias that, in fact, has, have created more violence because we see that yeah. then they're targeting a specific community, etc. So all the communal violence that we've seen, especially in the first half of the of 2019, uh, is a result of you know using self-defense militia instead of doing it yourself and assuming yeah. your security responsibilities. So that should stop immediately. And you know, like you can't um, ask an armed group to to carry out your responsibility. Yeah. Um, so that's one one thing, and the other would also be to address, of course, the political causes of the insecurity as well as the social economic aspects. Uh, whereas now, what we see is more like a short term objective. So, like, I think that's also what the UK is doing. For example, sending a few soldiers and helicopters to Balkans, sending now soldiers to the Minusma. Uh, also being part of Alliance Sahel, it's a bit like putting patches where you see that maybe mm. you know blood is, is flowing too much, but uh, this is not is not long term development objectives that should be at the focus of any initiatives. Yeah, and maybe um, maybe something else uh, would be in general uh, something like making security risk assessments for whenever troops are deployed more stringent. So, for example, uh, FAMA, which is, again, the, the Malian National Army, um, also works, some, some of the troops of FAMA also work within MINUSMA. So when they work within MINUSMA, their, their security assessments are particularly strict, but as soon as they go back to their army, then there is less of that. So mm-hmm. security sector reform in general is, is something that should be considered. Um, and maybe, maybe also uh, speaking with with states in Brussels, uh, state European Union member state uh, representatives, something that is uh, that is a catch twenty two and something that is very problematic for for member states is the fact that a lot of humanitarian convoys um, now cannot access areas which are very problematic from a security point of view, and so. Military convoys have to accompany them, which puts local populations very much at risk of retaliation from armed groups. So this is also something that is that is extremely nuanced and that needs a very much a case by case assessment basis. And so this is a way, perhaps, to to mitigate on the current threats. 
Thank you very much. This is super interesting. And I think it, it just highlights explicitly in, in Flo's case that the UK is is just putting a small amount of soldiers without understanding the international or regional dynamics and the many problems that are still present in the region. I guess my final question to you both would be, what advice would you give to the UK who are just about to deploy 250 soldiers to Mali? <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, the decision to deploy them, to deploy them has been made already. So, <laughs> <laughs> so the, the initial idea would have been to say, realizing whether the presence is will be positive or not, but that is happening. So maybe then I think something that would be very important would be to to have as nuanced as possible understanding of the different threats. So understanding who is who, where they operate, and whether in some cases understanding and addressing root causes is way more important than the quick security fix. Yeah, you're good now. Uh, so they're going to deploy their soldiers to uh, MINUSMA in Gao. So I think it's, in a sense, for the UK, it's uh, at least from you know, what we see in the media here, it's a, it's a big deployment, 250 soldiers. And it's also in a difficult and dangerous environment. You know, they keep repeating how MINUSMA is the deadliest uh, UN mission, etc. So, and at the same time, the UK is not going to make much of a difference. So it, here, I think it's already a bit difficult. It will be difficult to kind of sell the deployment to people because they're not going to achieve much. And yet, it seems like a big deployment. So mm-hmm. that's already... Um, a bit of a problem and more generally I think the UK really needs to uh, have a strategy about what it wants to do in, in, in the Sahel because now we see as I said kind of uncoordinated initiatives here and there with Barkhane, with MINUSMA, with Alliance Sahel and other uh, cooperation networks and uh, I, I understand that the UK needs to diversify its partners uh, because of Brexit and wants you know to be closer to French uh, to France because it kind of need needs to do that right now, but this is not a strategy. They shouldn't yeah. be going to the Sahel because they, they need to reinforce their partnership. This is not going to work. Uh, they're also going to be deployed for three years, so it's quite a long investment. Uh, and if they're going to stay that long, they might want to really uh, have a clear strategy so that also their soldiers know what they're going to do and why they're deployed. I feel like that is a... Not a very optimistic note to end on, <laughs> but I have to end it there. So I want to thank you both for coming on and talking about these issues with me. I feel like I've learned a lot and hopefully the people listening have too. We hope you enjoyed the discussion and for those who want to read more in depth about the topics we covered, we put links to any research or publications that we have mentioned in the episode notes, including publications by our two guests. If you want to stay up to date with the Remote Warfare Programme and the, the Oxford Research Group's work, Please subscribe to our newsletter by clicking on the bottom at the top of the page. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handles are at orginfo and at remote underscore warfare. You can listen to all previous episodes of our podcast free of charge by following the link at the top of the page. We look forward to joining you again soon.